Hi, I'm Pastor Jeremy, and I want to let you guys know a little bit about our church. We're so glad that you guys are here today as we worship the Lord together. And if you've never been here before, we're a little bit different because one of the things that we do is we go through the Bible every five years together as a congregation. And this is how we do it. Uh, We have a couple ways that you can follow along with us. What we do is six days a week, our congregation reads the Word of God together. And there there is a schedule of reading uh, for the entire year uh, that is at the information desk for you. And you can pick that up and read it, and you'll know exactly where we are because it's got the dates right beside it. This is what you're doing on November blank, right? And so Monday through Saturday, we read those texts together. Or you can go to our website, you can go to our YouTube channel, and our YouTube channel is youtube.com backslash Heights Christian Church. And there you can get devotionals that are based upon the reading that we're doing. We read the entirety of the scripture that we're reading together, but we kind of couple it with a devotional that kind of brings some of the scripture a little bit more to life for you. And, and some of the harder passages of scripture, like some of the things that we're going through right now, it's, it's a little bit easier for us to walk through together. And so this past week, we read Deuteronomy 19 through 25. How many of you read along with us this week? Sweet. Look at that. That's awesome. And we're kind of all over the place. If you're reading the, this this week, it's like it's disjointed. There's nothing really kind of grabbing it all together and putting it all into place. But there is a common theme that is found in there. And so the sermon title today is called Judging God. Judging God. And we're going to give you an, uh, an idea of why that is the sermon title in just a little bit. There are a lot of weird laws out there in the United States. And so I found this wonderful article on the 25 weirdest laws in the United States. Did you know that if you tried to pump your own gas in Oregon, you could be risking a visit from the police? Somebody said yes. Everybody else is laughing. Crossing state lines sometimes means entering a whole new world of prohibitive behavior you never imagined. So here's a list of the 25 strangest laws in the country, laws that beg the question, what went wrong to make that a law. All right. Number 25. I don't know that I'm going to read all 25 of them, but I'm going to read a select few of these real quick. Number 25, Alabama. In Alabama, it's illegal in Lee County for a person to sell peanuts after sundown on Wednesdays. (laughs) Number 24, University City, Missouri. It is illegal for four women to rent an apartment together. Number 23, Detroit, Michigan. It's for you, David. Letting your pet pig run free in the streets is illegal (laughs) unless it has a ring in its nose. One for us. Number 22, Las Cruces, New Mexico. One may not carry a lunchbox down Main Street. (laughs) Welcome to New Mexico, people. Alaska. It is illegal for a person to view a moose from an airplane. (laughs) Marion, Oregon. One may not walk backward while eating a donut on any city street. Why a donut? If it was a burrito, it's fine, but it's a donut. Arizona. It is illegal for donkeys to sleep in bathtubs.
Logan, Utah, it is illegal for women to swear. I'm noticing these women laws here. You got can't have an apartment, can't swear. Don't get me wrong, you shouldn't be swearing anyway, I'm just saying. Arcadia, California. Peacocks always have the right of way on streets and even on private driveways. So I'm sorry if little Fluffy is right there. You're not moving. Sorry I was late today. It was the Peacock's fault. Ackworth, Georgia, where I'm from, so we might as well get me too, right? Uh, I'm not from Ackworth, but it's still Georgia. It's illegal not to own a rake. Get some of our neighbors up north, Wyoming, taking a picture of a rabbit from January to April without an official permit is illegal. New Britain, Connecticut, fire trucks may not exceed 25 miles an hour even when hurrying to a fire. You might want to live next to the fire station there. Virginia, it is illegal to tickle a woman. I, I'd really like to know the story behind that one, right? Finally, one for men. Iowa, men with mustaches may never kiss women in public. Just saying. Washington, it is illegal for people to pretend that their parents are rich. Texas, the whole Encyclopedia Britannica is outlawed because it contains a recipe for making beer at home. And then finally, Kentucky. Dyeing a duckling blue and selling it is illegal unless you're selling more than six blue ducklings at once. What strange laws that we have, right? And some of these, many of these, okay, all of these laws seem very silly to us, but all of them were passed and had a reason why they were passed that at the time probably didn't seem silly to the people who passed them. At the core, all human law must be based on some kind of standard. And this idea is known as what we have in the West, a lot of uh, the ideas that we have concerning law, it comes from that which is called natural law. And I want to give a definition of that real quick. Natural law is a system of law based upon a close observation of human nature and based on values intrinsic to human nature that can be deduced and applied independently of positive law, which is the express enacted laws of the state or society. According to the theory of law cause called just naturalism, all people have inherent rights conferred not by an act of legislation, but by God, nature, or reason. That sounds familiar to our Declaration of Independence, doesn't it? Natural law theory can also refer to theories of ethics, theories of politics, theories of civil law, and theories of religious morality. However, laws have their limits as well. An unjust law is no law at all. It's an expression in support of natural law. Acknowledging that authority is not legitimate unless it is good and right, it's become the standard legal maxim around the world. 
So just do a Google search on unjust laws and you will get lists of unjust laws, not just here in the United States, not just here in our state or in our city, but all around the world of all of these laws that have been uh, contrived by man that are unjust. But there is a logical, uh, if you will, trail that you and I have to follow to understand an unjust law. And all of this has to do with the passages of scripture that we studied this week. So an unjust law presupposes certain things. Number one, to be unjust is to be evil. To be unjust is to be evil. Number two, there is such a thing as evil. Can't define something as evil unless you know what evil is, right? Number three, because there is evil, there must be such a thing as good. Number four, good must have a transcendent standard for which to judge. In other words, you can't just say good. What's good for you is not good for somebody else. It doesn't work like that. For something to be truly good, it has to be good for all. For something to be truly evil, it has to be truly evil for everybody. Otherwise, we're stuck in either pragmatism or relativism. Right, Either whatever works for me or relativism means you have your truth and I have my truth. But then society could not form itself around such a constraint, could it? Number five, a transcendent standard must have a transcendent lawmaker. Which leads us to number six. Therefore, all good laws are based upon God who establishes them because of his unchanging nature. All good laws are based upon God who establishes them because of his unchanging nature. See, the whole idea, when we go back to natural law, that, you know, that we're given unalienable rights, and it's given by God or nature or reason, the truth of the matter is, if, if we took that logically down that little rabbit hole, nature and reason would eventually fall off. Because once you take God out of the equation, nature and reason don't make sense. These standards are very important because it's through them that we understand a little bit more fully that the God whom we serve is good and what he says is good, right, and true. If we go back to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 6. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Where we look at What the writer of Hebrews says on the wall of faith, he says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And then verse 6, it says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. In other words, we have to believe that God exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. In other words, the things that God says is good. It leads to good outcomes, correct? Based upon his nature. 
And all of Western society is based upon that premise. You take that premise away, which we're seeing in our society right now, you're starting to see a lot of breakdown. But a lot of people don't understand why that breakdown is. And ironically, the truth of the matter is, people who want to take God out of the equation try to use this very standard to judge God and say that God is evil. And they will point to, for you and me, that many of the passages of Scripture we read this past week. Divorce from its context, divorce from its meaning, divorce from its understanding. And they will judge God by a standard that he devised himself to try and put God on trial and say, because of this, I deem this not good, therefore God is not good, therefore God is not real. And so I think it's important for us as we go through today's scriptures, we're going to do things a little bit differently. Because I've seen all these internet memes over a large period of time. I've looked at these internet memes that have taken a lot of these scriptures that we read this past week way out of context. Because number one, they do not know how to, how to divide the word of God rightly because they've never read it themselves. They've only read a verse of scripture out of context. That's why we're going through the Bible in five years. So we can read the verses of scripture in context. So we can understand what it says here in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. And how it relates to us in the New Testament. For those of you who are new or those of you who don't understand. The Old Testament and the New Testament are the covenants of God. You could change those words from being testament to covenant. It's the Old Covenant. It's the New Covenant. And they're joined together by the person of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. But we have to understand how these things go together to understand how to read the Old Testament in some of these passages that look hard for us, right? That are used as a, as a, you know, a cudgel against the Christian faith by saying, I don't believe this, and I believe this is, this is what my, I understand in my limited understanding of this saying, so I can beat you over the head, and you have to defend your faith in Jesus Christ by this verse that's taken out of context. So I want to help you guys walk through that today. So we're doing things a little bit different. Both the Old and New Testaments acknowledge that the law This Old Testament law, what we're looking at in Deuteronomy all the way back to Genesis, is holy, righteous, and good. So start first with the the people of Israel and how this law and this covenant came to be. We're going to go back and revisit it. Exodus chapter 19. So Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 3, it says this. Then Moses went up to God. And the Lord called him from the mountain and said, this is what you're to say to the house of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set them before all the words of the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. So here's the promise. If you obey the commands I'm going to give you this day, I have taken you out from Egypt. I have delivered you. And because I have delivered you, I want to set you apart as my people. 
if you will agree that you will follow me. And all the elders of the people of Israel said what? Yes, we will follow everything the Lord has said. What are they saying? God, whatever you say, because of what you have done, you have shown yourself to be real and true. And you have delivered us according to your promise that you gave to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. We will follow your decrees. They're not even written down yet. They did a Nancy Pelosi. We have to pass the bill to find out what's in the bill, right? Except they did it with a God who's unchanging. Who says, if you will do this, I, I will be your, you will be my people and I will be your God. You'll be set apart as a, as a nation of priests. To stand, stand out differently. So, what happened as far as that went is we then get the law. And that's what we're reading through right now. This is the second telling of law. Even an expansion of it, if you will. Because there's some things in there that weren't in some of the chapters beforehand. We have that progressive revelation that we talked about. So let's look at Psalm 19. Because Psalm 19 is written by David many hundred years later. And David is now king over Israel. And this is what he thinks about the law. This is what he says concerning the law of God. All the precepts that are already written in Deuteronomy that we have read this past week. So let's, let's see what he says. Psalm, one, Psalm 19. We're going to read the whole thing. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rides at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive me my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins, that they may not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Did you notice where, where this began and where it ended? It started with the acknowledgement that the heavens declare the reality of who God is. They point to the reality of God. And because God exists and we look at his precepts, his precepts are good. They're not just good. They're perfect. They're holy. They're righteous. They're true. And David talks about this hundreds of years later. In the same society that made that covenant promise with God. And we look in the New Testament, we see the same thing. We don't see a repudiation of the law going back to the Old Testament and saying, well, some of this wasn't so good, you know, some of this they got wrong. We don't see that at all. As a matter of fact, we see just the opposite. If we look in Romans chapter 7, Paul makes his case very clearly to the people of Rome. 
starting in verse 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would have not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, Do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. Why does the law exist in the first place? Because we're sinners. The law existed for Israel because they were sinful people and needed to know how to deal with sin within their society. And so God instituted a number of religious and civil laws that were for the people to live by. And they were to acknowledge that God was to be the head of their society. But with the coming of Jesus, we have the fulfillment of that old covenant law. All those penalties that we see that were for the people at that time that led to death because of the breaking of commandment were placed upon Jesus on the cross so that he died a death once for all for everybody who would accept him as Lord and Savior. This is hugely important as we begin to look at the the delineation between the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the New Covenant and the New Testament. Because as we read the Old Testament, we're like, does this still apply to me today? I would say yes, no, and maybe. Perfectly clear as mud, right? So what we're going to do real quick, I, I want to walk through this, this idea of the differences in the law. And of course, I don't have a, a long time to do it, and this won't be as exhaustive as it could be. Uh, but I do want to walk through something that you guys can hold on to and ask these three simple questions that are important for you recognizing an Old Testament statute and saying, does it still apply to me today? First one is this. Are they laws unique to Israel, to the Old Covenant? See, God wanted the people of Israel to look, to act, to conduct civil society in a specific way. God was their king, ultimately. Therefore, he placed forth these laws that we're reading in Deuteronomy that the people agreed to. In a way, when people came to a practicing Israelite, it should be very evident in a very short period of time because of the way that they looked and acted that they were Israelites. When in Israel, the same would apply to their laws and the greater society. I mean, we see examples of this in the foods that they were forbidden to eat. We see examples of this in the beards that they kept. They had to keep their beards a certain way. They They couldn't have tattoo marks on their bodies. They looked different than everybody else around them. It's like you looked at them like, that is an Israelite. I could just tell by the way that I see him. 
that he walks around and the things that he does, the way that he looks, everything inside and outside about him points to him being an Israelite. This was God's intention because, first and foremost, God wanted the people of Israel to stand out as a priestly nation. And second of all, it is through this priestly nation that the Messiah would eventually come, who would fulfill all of these things. So we need to look at that. Because of the coming of Jesus, because the coming of Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, these laws based upon sacrifice or appearance were no longer binding to those who followed Jesus who fulfilled them. All the sacrificial law In Leviticus, notice we don't slaughter animals here anymore because Jesus has become our sacrifice. The animals were slaughtered because of our sin, according to the old covenant. We don't have to do that anymore as believers in Christ because that's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. As a result, appearance of things, like the shaving of our beards in a certain way. Today we have many people who have many different beards or no beards at all today. And it's all fine. You know why? Because Jesus has already fulfilled that and therefore is no longer binding as a, as a civil society. And that was something that was given to the Jews to be different. I'm not Jewish. It doesn't apply to me. So number one is the first question is, are they laws unique to Israel? Number two, are they fulfilled in Christ? And then number three, is there a transcendent moral component to the law that should be continued or abstained from by Christians? Is there a transcendent moral component to the law that should be continued or abstained from by Christians? And the best way to find out about this is, are these moral components repeated in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Well, we just read one of them about coveting, right? Paul says, I wouldn't have known what coveting was unless the law said, do not covet. But the law telling me what was good produced in me every covetous desire. It's like, don't eat that cookie. And all of a sudden, all you can think about is cookies. Oh, my goodness. So many cookies. Because that sinful human desire, you can't have the cookie. But I just want the cookie now. That make... Saying no to the cookie a bad thing? No, but it made the coveting bad, right? And then we recognize within us that we are the coveters. So these three things we need to note. Is there a transcendent transcendent moral component to it? So what I want to do is just take a, a few moments here at the end to apply what we read this past week. Like I said, sometimes when we're reading these laws, we don't think of these things in that way. And I want us to walk through this together as a congregation and ask these three questions to a number of the scriptures that we looked at this week to help us understand how to rightly break the word of God and not be deceived by internet memes online that would try to confuse us. Okay? So, first one is this. Let's take a look at it together. Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17. Let's check it out. If a man has two wives, and he loves one but not the other, both of them bear sons, but the firstborn is the son of the wife he does not love, 
When he wills his property to his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn to the son of the wife he loves in preference to his actual firstborn, the son of the wife he does not love. He must acknowledge the son of his unloved wife as, a first, as the firstborn by giving him a double share of all that he has. That son is the first sign of his father's strength. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. Just three verses here. Man, there's a lot in there. First of all, if a man has two wives, that's the first thing, right? Um, we would say um, that's not God's ideal, right? Man shouldn't have two, two wives. God created one man, one woman. We go to the words of Jesus talking about that. And he goes back to Genesis and Genesis chapter 2 talking about how Adam and Eve were created and given to one another in the sight of God. So he creates the ideal standard as one man and one woman. So obviously that is affirmed in the scripture in both Old and New Testament. But we might live in a time where we have people with two wives. I hate to say it, but as our society kind of goes downhill, this could become a reality for us. How do we deal with that? Because believe it or not, multiple wives are even mentioned in the New Testament as well. It's one of the markers for people who can be in leadership. If you are married to more than one person, uh, you cannot be a leader in the church because you are not living out the ideal as found in First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The elder must be a husband of but one wife. means you can't have two, okay, or three or seven. And part of the reason of that is if you already have that many wives you have, you have your own church in your home. You have, you have your own problems right there to be raising all these people in the Lord as well as telling them, this was a mistake of mine, but I, God doesn't want me to divorce. So guess what? I'm, I, I don't want to say I'm stuck with four wives, but I'm stuck with the imperfect here while I'm telling you to live righteously for Jesus. Therefore, I cannot be the example to the congregation because I'm not living out that ideal. Okay? So we see that. We also see this idea of favoritism, right? God doesn't play favorites. Therefore, you shouldn't play favorites either in this passage of Scripture. And we can look throughout both the Old and New Testaments of the warning against favoritism. So we can pull out these things and understand what we can take from that passage and what we shouldn't. Now, when we talk about the double portion for the firstborn, is that an Israel thing? Yes, it is. Is that an American thing? Nope, not that I'm aware of. Because I'm the firstborn, last, last I checked, my dad said 50-50. So, between me and my brother. So, dad, if you're listening, my double portion be good? No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, so, let's go to another passage of scripture. Parents, you might want to put this one in your pocket. Um, Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, it says, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son... Who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him. His father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. And they shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He's a profligate and a drunkard. Then all the men in his town shall stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. All the children in the church today might hear of it and be afraid. Right? So, so obviously, we don't go to church. We, I don't think I've ever heard of a church stoning any kids. I've heard of parents wanting to stone their kids. It's a little different story. Right? But a rebellious son is still not a good thing, is it? 
And while the penalty of death may not bear witness among the community because that sin is placed upon Jesus on the cross, the idea of a rebellious son is still something we look back in Ephesians chapter 6. It says that we're still to honor our fathers and mothers and obey them because of the blessing of God that comes with that, that we might live a long life on the earth and it may go well with us, right? So the idea of us being rebellious is still a sin toward God if we're going to do that in our, in our families. So I'm going to rebel against my mom and dad just because I want to rebel against them. That's still sin because I see it in both the Old Testament and reaffirmed in the New Testament. Whereas Jesus takes the punishment end of things. That's been fulfilled so I don't have to worry about stoning them to death, right? Taking them before that. But to realize that having a rebellious spirit will have very bad consequences for our children. And so just because we no longer stone you kids doesn't mean that being rebellious is going to go well with you. Matter of fact, it says just the opposite. And so we need to understand that. All right, Deuteronomy. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. We'll do a few more of these real quick. If you see your brother's ox or sheep straying, do not ignore it, but be sure to take it back to him. If the brother does not live near you or if you do not know who he is, take it home with you and keep it until he comes looking for it. Then give it back to him. Do the same if you find your brother's donkey or his cloak or anything he loses. Do not ignore it. It sounds a whole lot like love your neighbor as yourself, right? Sounds like, hey, if you're... If you're neighbor has lost something, help take care of it. Is that just an Israel thing? I don't think so. I think this is something that, is, that transcends just Israel's, what God wants all of us to be able to do, to love our neighbors as ourselves, right? Jesus said, who is my neighbor? And then you get the whole parable of the, the Samaritan, right? Who goes, who goes along the way and, and actually helps somebody in this exact same way to a person who's been beat up. So we see that principle continued on in the New Testament. Let me just tell you. If any of you guys have neighbors who have oxes or sheep, you now know what to do with them. All right. Chapter 22 and verse 5. A woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear woman's clothing, for the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. Is this just something for Israel? I mean, that's what we have to talk about. Is this something for Israel? Is this something that Jesus fulfilled? Or is this, there's a moral, is there a moral um, component to this that extends to all believers at all time. Anybody who would, who would seek out God, trust that he is, and he rewards those who seek him. Is there a moral component to that? I believe that there is. I believe when we go back to where God created male and female, he doesn't want those lines of distinction talked away. This doesn't mean women can't wear pants just because men are wearing pants. Okay? But it does mean that our society has definite guy and girl clothing choices, don't we? And those guy and girl clothing choices are important because that distinction highlights a God who created us in his image, male and female. And so we don't cross-dress. And those who are struggling, you know, with this idea of transgenderism, transgenderism is just very expensive cross-dressing. That's all it is. Because a man can't become a woman and a woman can't become a man. It's impossible. It's a physical 
impossibility, no matter how you look. So we go back to that. We go back to what God has said. Deuteronomy 22.8, check this out. When you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. Is that for Israel? Yeah, that's for Israel. How many of you have parapets on your house? That's awesome. I'm not saying... So we have 3% of the people in this congregation have parapets on their house, right? So that people won't fall off the edge. Now, should we have safety in our houses and stuff? Absolutely, we should. But this is something that Israel was supposed to do. So when you went into a community and you saw all the parapets on all the houses, guess what? You knew you were in an Israelite community. It was part of being identified with Israel. Not all the other nations did stuff like that. So this is part of the identity of the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 22.9. Do not plant two kinds of seed in your vineyard. If you do, not only the crops you plant, but also the fruit of the vineyard will be defiled. Was this for Israel? Yes, it was for Israel. Was some of this fulfilled through Christ? Yes, because the idea of the fruit being offered to God, that's what it's talking about, that that when you offered it, it wouldn't be defiled before God. So they had to have a pure offering. When Jesus came, he fulfilled those regulations. Therefore, they're no longer binding on us because we find the reality in Christ. He's the one that we were having this fruit grown up for to begin with. But now that he's come... I can have two different seeds, right? And it doesn't mean bad stuff's going to happen to me now because the reality is Jesus. Let's do uh, 22 verse 11. Do not wear clothes of wool and linen woven together. See, this is a big one actually that's out there on memes right now that are trying to get people to doubt the word of God. Oh, you have, you have two different kind of fabrics that your clothes are on. I'll see you in hell. I kid you not. There are, there are memes out there that has Jesus smiling to those people and all the flames that are there quoting this verse. Is that what that means? The wool and linen, was that for Israel? Yes, for them to be identified as the people of God in society. Therefore, they wore certain things the way that God asked them to wear. So they would look like the people of God on the inside and on the outside. Was it fulfilled in Christ? Absolutely. Because Jesus came, he lived under that law. He didn't wear two different types. He didn't wear wool and linen together. You know why? Because he was a Messiah and he was going to live out those things. And when they were completed in him, they were no longer binding to those who are believers in Christ today, who are outside the land of Israel. And even those who are inside the land of Israel, who believe in Christ, understand the fulfillment that Jesus had for that. Do you guys understand why this makes a difference? Because people today are taking these passages of Scripture, the ones that we've been reading this past week, and using them in an unrighteous manner to try and sow confusion 
in your life on understanding, well, does that mean I can't wear, like, I got polyester and cotton, right? I ate shrimp and pork last week, and man, it was delicious. Should I feel guilty about that? See, all these regulations were there for the people of Israel that Jesus might be revealed. That they as a society agreed to walk in this first covenant until such covenant was completed through Christ. And therefore, that covenant is good and righteous and holy. And you know what? We're going to look through there and we're going to say, I wouldn't do that. Our laws wouldn't be like that today. Take any controversial thing. They have the sexual ordinances there. We wouldn't do that today. Some of those things you wish we would have. Some of those things would be like, I don't think we should do it that way anymore. This was for the people of Israel as a society together. They had agreed under this old covenant. And according to both the people of Israel who entered into this covenant and to the Christians who came afterwards, they said the law is righteous, good, and holy. You and I have no right to call it otherwise. We need to look at it in the right light. Because some of these things, some of these principles in these laws that are there are still binding to you and I today. God still wants the marriage bed honored. He doesn't want premarital sex. And that's in this chapter. Doesn't want women overpowered and raped. That's in these chapters. He wants the virgins to be treated with respect. That's in these chapters. And while we don't have the civil punishments that the people of Israel did at that time, we do have the God who took that punishment for us. And therefore, I can look at the law and say, holy, righteous, and good, and realize that where I have broken that law, where, where it's binding to me, even in the New Testament sense, that all of that punishment fell upon Jesus so that I might live. Man, that's, that's huge. And misunderstanding that, causing confusion for that, so that you don't believe that either God is good nor he exists, hides the goodness of God through Jesus Christ. And my prayer for you today is that as we go through the word of God and understand it better, that we would take into account these things. As we're going through the rest of this Old Testament, are these laws unique to Israel? Is there a transcendent moral component to the laws that should be continued or abstained? And most importantly, are they fulfilled in Christ, because if they are, praise God, glory to him, because we have freedom in him to live for him differently because of what he did for us. Would you stand? Let's pray together. Let's pray for the wonderful time that we're going to have afterwards today for the veterans that are out there. But if you've been a little confused concerning how to deal with the Old Testament, I pray that this has been a help for you today. Take away some of the confusion that's out there that wants to let you think, number one, that there's contradictions in the word of God, which there's not. Or that these Old Testament regulations somehow mean that you're not holy enough and you're gonna go to hell. Jesus paid that price. We get to walk in that freedom. And that's the good news we get to share. 
God, thank you so much for our time together today. Pray in the name of Jesus that you help us to understand the Old Testament law, how it applies to us as believers in Christ and how you took that punishment of where we have fallen short upon yourself so that all who believe in you might not perish but have everlasting life. And for that, we give you glory and praise in the name of Jesus. Bless our fellowship time together after this time, Lord, with those who have served our country and allowed us to be able to be in this place freely worshiping and praising you. In Jesus' name, amen.